Good morning and good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to SACPA, our continuing series of fascinating speaker talks. Um, I remind you to turn off your cell phones, and my name is Heather Oxman. I'm a board member at SACPA, and uh, I'm happy to welcome you to our talk today. Um, Shaw Spotlight records SACPA presentations and uses excerpts from the PowerPoint for their daily broadcasts. Um, I'm here to remind you that it's a $14 charge for your lunch and you all probably know to put $14 in the bowls on each table or if you're just having coffee it's $2. Um, please count the correct amount before we collect the bowls at 1230. Um, the format of the meeting which you are probably all familiar with is that uh, we have a 30 minute talk then we have lunch, and it's followed by a question and answer period. And um, I'd like to acknowledge that our events take place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationships to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. Please, come in, Mary. So today's talk is Middle East Societies in Crisis. Dr. Sean McMahon will locate the crises of the societies of the Middle East in the global political economy, conceptualize wars, state policies, and social dynamism as regional and national processings of global relations in crisis. He's a visiting assistant professor of political science at the University of Lethbridge, and please welcome Dr. Sean McMahon. Thank you, and good afternoon. <laughs> this is a different demographic than I'm used to speaking with. <laughs> uh, you can read that how you'd like. Um, I wrestled with how I was going to uh, frame this overall. Everyone can hear me, right? That's not usually a problem, all right? I wrestled with how to frame this because uh, I thought I could talk to you about the global political economy and try to remain agnostic on the real politics and social relations of that global political economy. But ultimately, I, I couldn't write this presentation that way, and I felt it would insult your intelligence. So I'm just going to say this right out front. What you're going to hear from me is an unapologetic Marxian analysis of the global political economy and of Middle East societies. We're going to have a conversation in terms of that word we're told we can't use, that dirty word class. We're going to talk about capital. We'll talk about exploitation. Thank you. All right. The overwhelming majority of thinking about politics of the Middle East, uh, include, uh, in fact, 
thinking and talking about all regional politics and all international politics is that the analysis should start with the domestic. It starts with domestic analysis to which external factors are then appended. Scholars and journalists assume that there are separate autonomous states in the world, and these separate autonomous states in the world interact with other separate and autonomous states in the world, and then somehow create the international system. This is the wrong way to think about the global political economy. It's the wrong way to think about politics, the wrong way to think about the world. To properly conceive, to properly comprehend global, regional, and national politics, analysis must begin I should get to my slide. <laughs> Analysis must begin with the whole and then proceed to the parts. The totality is the global political economy and the parts are individuated nation states. States such as Canada, China, South Africa. They are the broken down, the decomposed constituent parts of the unity, the unitary global political economy. So this approach of starting with the system and working inwards rather than starting with societies, national societies and working outwards, but starting with the system and working inwards allows for a critical reconceptualization of what in fact international relations are. Rather than foreign politics being the externalization of domestic politics, international relations, including those of the Middle East, are instances of national processings, national processings of global political economic relations. What are understood as domestic politics are really about national societies finding their own ways to work out global politics. Anyone who doubts the veracity of this conceptualization I have a simple question I encourage you to ask yourselves. What determines the price of oil that so dominated the recent provincial election? That is not, despite what some of my interlocutors say on Twitter suggest, is not determined by Rachel Notley, or Jason Kenney for that matter. Understanding or thinking of the world as a unitary system, first and foremost, using that as your point of departure to think about the world and then working inwards, also explains, it also explains the emergence of fascism in such nationally, culturally, socially, and religiously diverse societies. Like, think, let's run off where fascism is reasserting itself around the world, right? The reason, the US, India, Germany, the Philippines, Hungary, that's just an abbreviated list. That is because all of those societies are processing the same crisis of the global political economy. The crises of Middle East societies are particular national expressions of the crisis of the global political economy. The crisis of the global political economy is that capital, <laughs> there's that word, the people who own the means of production, those who 
buy our labor time and leave us so little of it free. Capital is having intense difficulty converting the nearly $27 trillion. Since 2007, the world's central banks have created $27 trillion in artificial money <laughs> through the quantitative easing is the most spectacular instance of this. $27 trillion. This money must, if it's to function as a productive force, it must be made to put workers to work, to actually make workers work even harder and longer. In order for all of that money to function as a productive force, people like Bernanke, the European Central Bank, they just turned on the printing presses. In order for that money to serve as a productive force, it must be transformed into effective social control of the working class. And we see that capital is having a problem doing that manifested in the inflation of the Wall Street bubble. If that money was effectively being put to put us to work, you would not see the Dow Jones up at record levels. The reason the Dow Jones continues to break record levels is because it's only in the fictitious world of Wall Street that that funny money can continue to circulate. And that's why even people like Donald Trump, pooh, he can come out and he can say the Fed must lower interest rates again. He knows, or at least his advisors know, that that bubble is entirely dependent on the central banks. They are what gives that, all of that fictitious money any meaning. The reason capital is having this problem is because the working class is resisting the intensification of its own exploitation. So you have all of this, here's the fancy, I, I actually had to make sure I could pronounce this right, ex nihilio money. This is money created out of nothing. It must be turned into social control. But the working class, we have the, we, just because we're told to do something, we can be insubordinate. We all, we all find ways to cheat, however it is. Students are forever finding inventive ways to get out of work. Workers are subverting capital's attempt to turn all of that money into effective social control. Look around the world. You have massive teacher strikes in the US, Poland, Greece, Argentina, Kenya. You have the yellow vest protests in France. You even have the political violence committed by ISIS in the destroyed societies of Iraq and Syria. So you have capital trying to assert command, the working class resisting it, and of course then, when the working class does not <coughs> submit to its own exploitation, capital must of necessity become more despotic. That is why you see in this historic moment the reemergence of fascism. Capital is having a problem getting workers to voluntarily submit to its control, so it must use bigger and bigger sticks. It's also why it continues to promote racism, why it promotes supremacist, exclusivist nationalisms. And these are not by any means unique to American society, although they get the most press.
All the polities of the Middle East are similarly going through this social movement of command, resistance, recommand, re-resistance. I think I have a slide. Oh, I do. Look at that. <laughs> right? I would probably be told to stay by the mic. Probably be better if it was circular, but this is the dynamism. Okay? In general terms, capital has sought to turn the fictitious money into effective command. The most spectacular instance of workers' resistance and refusal to accept that command is what's problematically called the Arab Spring of 2011. What are cast as revolutions were not revolutions. Certainly, I, uh, I lived in Egypt in 2011. Uh, I have been shot at and tear gassed, and as much as I would like that to be a revolution, it was not. But that does not mean that the workers just accepted the diktats. Since then, capital's attempts to further impose control in general terms have involved things like inflation, severe austerity, and near totalizing repression and war. The one I'm most familiar with is Egyptian society. President Sisi is the most blood-soaked autocrat modern Egyptian society has ever had to suffer. And given the rogues gallery who's governed that, that's, a, that's quite an accomplishment. That's the, oh, I will make one more point and then I'll get to the specifics. In the case of Iran and the American drive to go to war with Iran. What I characterize as the crisis of command, capital's inability to easily transform all that artificial money into effective social control, that crisis of command is also a crisis of the international state system. In the case of Iran and the falling out, and we can talk about it if you'd like, the falling out between the great imperial powers the fact that the British, the French, and the Germans are not acceding to the American abnegation of the so-called Iran deal, and that they are in fact creating a parallel financial system. And the American responses to it shows that what we have taken for granted in the interstate system for the, well, since the close of the Second World War is ending. I write, wrote quite a bit more than I needed today. So I'm going to start with Egypt. I have stuff on Israel and Saudi Arabia. I don't know if I'll have time to get to it, but I'll speak to Egypt, and then I'll probably move directly to Iran. We can talk about other societies in the region over questions, if you'd like. OK. Egyptian society, as I said, after 2007, capital tried to transform its artificial money into social control through commodity price inflation. In the case of Egyptian society, that was most spectacular in the form of food. In the last six months of 2010, food price inflation in Egyptian society was 16%. 
16% over six months in a society where 45% live on less than $2 a day and the majority spend more than 50% of their income on food. Cost of food is more than housing, utilities, education. That's devastating. The revolution of 2011 was an act of desperation on the part of the Egyptian working class. It was not going to see its exploitation extended and intensified further. When the indirect attack of inflation failed, capital went a more direct route. 2013, it had the head of the military. Field Marshal Sisi committed a coup. Committed the coup in July. By August, they were massacring people in Rabah and Nada Square. This is the quote from Human Rights Watch. It describes the massacres as one of the world's largest killing of demonstrators in a single day in recent history. When capital can't get the working class to go along with it through indirect means, it uses direct means. Capital's despotic attack on Egyptian workers didn't end in 2013. Even now, the Egyptian state continues to conduct mass trials through military courts. It's waging a brutal war on workers in the Sinai Peninsula. So brutal the, 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 the media is not allowed into the Sinai. You cannot talk about the Sinai in the Egyptian press. You cannot do research on the violence in the Sinai. Indirectly, in 2016, November 2016, Egypt was subject to structural adjustment by the IMF. Overnight, the Egyptian currency was deflated 48%. In other words, everybody's food went up 48%. Since then, didn't stop there. You've seen reduction of subsidies, so effectively inflationary pricing of petrol, electricity, sugar, edible oil, bread, bus, metro tickets, everything all while wages have stagnated. Predictably, as the state has gotten more violent doing capital's bidding, workers' resistance has become more violent. In 2017, in a rather spectacular attack in the Western Desert, 59 police officers and military officers were killed in an ambush. And I don't know if you saw, but already in this calendar year, there have been two bus bombings near the Giza pyramids. In fact, one just earlier this week. I lived in Egypt for 11 years. It's not surprising to me at all the level of of violence in that society. In fact, the only thing that ever kind of surprised me what there was that there wasn't more violence. That 
is the future, certainly in the near term, of the Egyptian polity. Let's talk about, let's talk about the crisis of the international state system for a minute. I'm okay, right? Yeah, for time, okay. <laughs> See, in my classrooms, I get to talk as long as I want about whatever I want. <laughs> get on. There is, there's a systematic attack on the rules governing the international system. Uh, the American decision to relocate its embassy to colonized East Jerusalem is an example of that. So too is the attempt on the part of the United States to gift the occupied Golan Heights to Israel. Those are not the only attacks on the international system, however. Look, the unilateral renegotiation of NAFTA, the abandonment of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the abandonment of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What we understand to be the international order is being changed. For those of you who may not be particularly inclined to the political analysis I'm giving, I, I encourage you to look at John Eikenberry's article from Foreign Affairs in 2017. Here's what he said, and you'd never accuse Eikenberry of being particularly critically minded. The world's most powerful state has begun to sabotage the order it created. He said he goes on, the United States has become a hostile revisionist power. And it should be more concerning for people, the authorization of Israel's conquering of the Golan Heights and the attempt to transfer ownership to the of the Golan to Israel, this is a legitimization of the acquisition of territory by force. That, to my mind, is a clear sign of the preparations that are being made for global war that will be legitimate to steal land. American-Iranian relations express this crisis. It has, in fact, that relationship is somewhat a microcosm of all the dimensions of this international crisis. First, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Part of the reason that Iran joined it was Iran, the Iranian state has trouble with its own working class, despite the corporate collaborationist media's representations of Iran as being monolithically fundamentalist. In the last six months, in the last six months, make sure I get this right, sugarcane workers, steel workers, workers at the heavy equipment production company, teachers, truck drivers have all gone on strike in Iran. So the Iranian state itself has problems controlling its insubordinate working class. That is one of the reasons why it wanted to enter the, jo the, comp the Joint Conference of Plan of Action, was to subject its workers to market discipline. It wouldn't be the ones to discipline it. Global currency flows would. The second dimension, of course, the American imposition of sanctions on Iran. These are a direct attack on the working class in Iran. You're getting food price inflation. You've also had, in some cases, the stop payment of salaries to workers. And at the same time, 
The working class's own reproduction is endangered because it can't import medicine, can't import medical devices. The third dimension of that relation is about access to Iranian oil. And this is what I was saying. Some connections can be made with uh, oil here in Alberta. In both cases, oil allows for the mechanization of production. When I talk to my students and they want to say, for example, that immigrants are responsible for unemployment, I just encourage them to look out the window at the heavy machinery that's used to construct the new destination project and ask themselves how many human beings have been replaced by that heavy machinery. All of that heavy machinery, of course, runs on oil or some derivative of oil. Oil allows for the spatial reorganization of production. For not oil, you couldn't produce commodities in China having consumed in Canada. They'd have to be produced where they were consumed. Anybody know, uh, I can ask questions, anyone know why Winston Churchill decided to convert the British fleet from coal to oil when the British Isles had coal but not any oil? The conversion was made because the British deemed Middle East oil more politically reliable. Ah, miners had a horrible habit of unionizing. Some of them were communists. It couldn't be counted on. Somebody whose first name is Crown Prince, he's a reliable source of oil. Oil and its derivatives allow capital to impose more work on the working class. The more machines, once we're appended to a machine, we work at machine time, machine pace, not our own. That is why, yes, there's a lot of talk about how oil is in the interest of uh, ExxonMobil, BP. Yes, there's that, there's that interest in accumulating wealth, certainly, but the social dynamic is about controlling the working class globally. The fourth dimension of this crisis, and this is the one that relates to inter-imperialist rivalry. Iran is the locus of an intensifying competition. In response to the American negation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, so it was signed in 2015 and in 2018, the United States backed out. In response to the American decision, Germany called for what it deemed named a special purpose vehicle. Germany wanted to create infrastructure in the global political economy that would allow Europe to continue to trade with Iran. But it wanted Europe to be able to continue to trade with Iran without being subject to American sanctions. Global trade is done in American dollars and it uses a system called SWIFT. SWIFT is a financial messaging network. That is how the US state keeps track of how everyone trades with other states. In fact, not for nothing, of course, part of its war on terror after 2001 was to ensure that the surveillance of the SWIFT system was totalizing. 
The special purpose vehicle Germany proposed was to be a parallel channel that would process Iranian export and import payments in non-dollar denominated currency. Just January of this year, so a scant few months ago, France, Germany, and the UK announced the establishment, there's the acronym, announced the establishment of the instrument in support of trade exchange. This is non-dollar denominated trade with Iran. This is how Europe is intending to get around Europe's attempt to escape American surveillance. This is an explosion of the international state system. It is why just this month, the United States is intensifying its drive to war with Iran. We've seen that it just dispatched the carrier battle group, the Abraham Lincoln, to the Persian Gulf. And I don't know how many of you saw this, it is why the United States is now threatening the European Union with the collapse of NATO. Earlier this month, on May 1st, the U.S. Department of Defense sent the European Union a letter warning against its plans to develop a European army. Warned that if it were to develop that army, it could lead to a collapse of the NATO alliance. Here's the quote. The United States is deeply concerned by the approval of the rules of the European Defense Fund and the general conditions for the permanent structured cooperation. That's EU speak for army. The development of the European army, the letter went on to say, is leading to a dramatic step back in three decades of growing integration and also could potentially revive the tense discussions that dominated our contacts 15 years ago, end quote. What they're saying is if the, Euro if the European Union persists in trying to build its army, American-European relations will deteriorate at least to the level 15 years ago when the United States attacked illegally Iraq. That you're looking again at this kind of nadir in the international state system. The crisis of the global political economy is sharpening. As I said, the most obvious example of this is the Wall Street bubble. But so is the rising fascism around the world and what we call, tend to call in the third world, the imperialized world, the rise of authoritarianism. And the Middle East is not short on that. The Middle East has its own particular national expressions of this global crisis. The individual names change. President Sisi, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But the social dynamics are the same everywhere. Capital aims to impose more work. Workers resist the imposition. Capital necessarily cultivates racism and exclusivist supremacist nationalism and becomes more and more violent. At the same time, the American creation of crisis with Iran and its imperial competitors is an appearance of how that fundamental crisis of conversion of artificial money into real social control is also a real crisis of the international state system. Thank you.